Our speaker this morning uh, is named Becky Wagner, and Becky has had an impact on many people and many people from Westmont. She lives in the Washington, D.C. area. Actually, her home is now in Annapolis, Maryland, nearby Washington, but she's lived in the Washington, D.C. area most of her life, and she has had a, what I've seen to be a tremendous influence on a lot of people your age. She's been associated with some of the people that you've heard here in chapel, uh, Mr. Dick Foth, for example, and others, uh, through a place called the Cedars, which is a quiet place where anybody can use it, but many times it winds up being leaders uh, from around the world who either need a break or who need to get out of the limelight or away from the press or need to rethink their lives. And it's a quiet place just outside Washington, D.C. It's staffed by volunteers, practically all volunteers. And uh, many Westmont students have wound up volunteering three months, six months, or a year there to pursue Christ in, a, in, a, in, a, in an intentional way and to serve while they're doing that. And Becky has met with many of our uh, women students especially who go back there and mentoring relationships with them, taking them deeper in Christ. And she's here this morning also with an alum of our college who went back uh, first to the Washington, D.C. area to uh, grow deeper with a group of women, uh, Westmont alums, who went back together and have stayed together for many years now. And now she's partnered with Becky Wagner, and her name is Kathy Moran. I'd like you to welcome both of them. And Becky is going to speak to us this morning. Let's welcome both of them. Kathy, stand up, would you? morning. Curtis scared me a little bit. He uh, indicated that uh, most of you might be asleep already. That's a little scary. Um, I want you to know that when I, I was young when I came to know the Lord and I started my journey of pilgrimage. I, I think of it as a pilgrimage to the heart of God. That's how I sort of think of my journey in Christ. And um, when I started, I was young, and I would try to think of how do I keep my mind focused on him? How do I think about him? What do I feel? And uh, how, how can I keep this a part of my daily life? When I was in junior high, I used to walk along, and I decided, you know, if I'm walking in the halls with a friend, and we're walking along, and she's standing here next to me, I'd never run her off into the corner or bump her off into the lockers. You know, I always left some space. And... Your body um, knows how to do that. You adjust spatially for the people you're with and that kind of thing. So I'd be walking along. and So I decided, well, you know, if the Lord was really with me each day and all day long, I would, he would need some space. So to try to think that he was with me and to try to remember this, I would leave room for him. So I would walk along and I would leave space and then I would cut the corners wide so I wouldn't run him off into the corner. And I did this to practice. It's, it's what uh, Bart was saying about Oswald Chambers. You know, practicing um, the obedience and the coming to know him so that I wouldn't forget that he really was with me. When I turned 16, again, I was thinking about these things, and I, I would drive along. You know how you get in the car and you throw your books and your bags in the passenger seat and you turn on the radio and you crank it up and you're singing, you're driving along? You think, um, 
you know, no, nobody's there with you, so it's no problem. Radio is much louder. But if your mother is there or your good friend is there, usually keep the volume down a little bit in case they might want to say something to you. It's, um, and you wouldn't like dump your books all over them or anything, so you always dump the books in the back. Well, I decided to try that with the Lord. I thought, well, like if the Lord is really with me in this car, I wouldn't have him like sitting in the back seat. I'd put him up here with me. So I would conscientiously put my books in the back and I'd keep the volume down a little bit in case he wanted to say something to me so that I, I at least would be a little receptive. And those little tiny things you do, you know, you do those things for him. It's a sacrifice you make for him. And, and it's been a journey for me. This morning I want to uh, cover some basic things quickly. But I want to start um, with something extremely familiar. But I'd like you to try to think with me uh, maybe a little differently than some of these things you've thought of and you've heard before so many, many times. I know these things are very familiar to you. I realized, boy, I wish all the lights were on you guys and I was in the dark and I could see all your faces. But I'm going to read to you out of um, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. There's where the Holy Spirit makes his first entrance. People always think it happened somewhere near Pentecost. Truth is, he he showed up right there in the first verse. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And then there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be the expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse, separated the water from under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. And God called the expanse the sky. And then there was the evening. And then there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place. And let the ground appear. And it was so. And God called the dry ground land. And the gathered waters he called the seas. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let the land produce vegetation. Seed bearing plants, trees on the land that bear fruit and seed in it according to their various kinds and so on. And it was so. And the land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, trees bearing fruit and so forth. And God saw that it was good. And then there was an evening, and there was morning, the third day. And then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as the signs to mark seasons and days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so, and God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars, and God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And then there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. I want to stop here for a minute. 
If man had written this, they never would have put it this way. Moses could not have thought this up. Because all of us know that it's the sun and the moon and the rotation of the earth that makes the day and the night. That the light comes from the sun and the reflected light of the sun on the earth and the moon and the stars. We all know that. And Moses could look up and figure it out for himself and he would have written it that way. But the interesting thing is, is God didn't do it that way. Because the sun and the moon are light, but they are not the source of light. God is the source of light. It said in the first verse, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And there was an evening and a morning the first day. There was an evening and a morning the second day. There was an evening and a morning the third day before he ever made the sun or moon. Most of us think that the sun and moon is what dictates the evening and the morning. But that's not true. God is light. He creates out of nothing. This is what makes him different from us. We need something to create. He created out of nothing. And he had three days before he ever had the sun and the moon. And then he said he gave them to us to govern over the day and night. They are the governors. He said that he gave us the seasons to mark, he gave us these signs to mark the seasons, the days, and the years. For who? Nobody was created yet. This is four days early. Whose years is he marking? What days? Who needs a birthday? He thought it up. You know, most of us think that man created the sundial and thought up the seasons and the years and how to mark our days. God thought it up. We did, nothing originated with us. It was his idea. He didn't create us for three more days. But he'd already created a calendar so we could mark our days and our years. It goes on, and in the fifth day, he created, or the sixth day, it was a very big day, he created the living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock, domesticated animals, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals. Each according to their own kind. You know what's interesting? Most people think men domesticated the animals. We did not. God did it. He thought it up. He made wild animals and he made domesticated animals. And then he gave us, created us, he gave us dominion over them. The sun and moons have dominion over the, the days and the years and the seasons. We have dominion over the plants, the animals. But we didn't think it up. We didn't domesticate them. He did it. It was his idea. I want to run this by you because I want to establish who he is and who we are. I'm going to read now from Colossians. If I can find it. Colossians 1.15. Who is he? Who is this God that we love? I wanted to read this. These are the things that excite me most about the character of God. He always surprises me. He's not like we think he is. It says in Colossians that he is the image of the invisible God. 
the firstborn over all the creation, all the things we just read about. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things. You already know this. Things in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness, fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So who are we? We know who he is. He is everything. He's what's holding it all together. You think it's gravity? Think again. He holds everything together. Who are we? We're part of the things he created for him, by him. You were created for him and by him. You were created out of love for love. That's what you're here for. I know you know this. The great command in life to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Now I want to move to John 3. John 3 is uh, a very familiar story. Jesus is with his disciples. It's nearing the end of his time on earth. And he is uh, going to wash the disciples' feet. And it says right here, the evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And was... And so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. What is it that made Jesus Christ able to do that? Why did he wash the disciples' feet? What made him so secure? He's God of the universe. We've just read he created everything. He thought up everything. We are part of that. He's created but why, why would he wash their feet? It says it very clearly. Because he knew where he had come from and where he was going. He's absolutely secure. Knowing that the Father had given him all the power in heaven and on earth, he knew where he was from and where he was going, and that enabled him to do what he had to do next. And he washed their feet, and he went to the cross, and he died there and was resurrected again. He did what he had to do. So what is it we're supposed to do? What's our response? Our response is uh, very similar. He said, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father and he'll give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. Then the world cannot accept him because he, it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. And... 
He lives with you and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And on that day, you'll realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father. And it goes on, and then he says again, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teachings. That's what we're supposed to do. If you love God, obey him. In Deuteronomy, you know the verse where it, it, um, Moses is giving the great command to the people. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart. Know that one? You know what it says right before that? This is what it says right before that. It says, Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly. The secret is in the obedience. The secret is obeying. You know, I asked Kathy coming here. I said, How, what do these students think about? What do they really want to do? You know, most of them know the Lord. Most of them know and understand the purpose of life. Most of them understand uh, the scriptures, have read the scriptures. These things are very familiar. What do they want to do? She says, well, one of the things I know that they're thinking about is doing something for the Lord. And possibly they would like to make a contribution do something significant with your life. I think that's admirable, and I think that that is something that all of us aspire to. I think that uh, all of us have that opportunity, but it's through the obedience, and it's knowing what to obey. The big question, many people come to us, young people, they want to know, how do you love God? What do you have to do? And we say, well, we talk to them about obedience. We talk to them about forgiveness. We talk about uh, all of the aspects. But one of the things is, is to know, the secret is knowing. He says, if you know me, you hear my voice and you will obey it. There is a, there's a number of things, the commands. He says, do as I command. What is he commanding? There's a lot of things. Give and it will be given unto you. Forgive says, if you don't forgive your brother, neither will the Father in heaven forgive you. It's pretty, pretty hard. That means you cannot hold unforgiveness in your heart, bitterness. There's not room there. If the God of the universe dwells in you and he has freely forgiven everyone, you cannot hold unforgiveness in your heart and be his disciple. It says... Let God remold your mind from within. What do you think about? What do you spend your time thinking about? Put on the mind of Christ. As a man thinketh, so is he. Seek his face. Pray without ceasing. 
Turn the other cheek. These are the things you know, but it's in the obedience. Obedience is the natural response to the love of God. It's knowing where you have come from and where you are going. That's what gives you the self-security to do what you must do. It's the same thing that gave him the security to do what he had to do. Matthew 10:18 says, "The eye is the lamp of the body. If the eye is full of light, your whole body will be full of light. And if your eye is full of darkness, your whole body will be full of darkness, and oh, how great is that darkness." This is one of the things you can do. You can focus on him. Keep your eye full of light. We just talked about in Genesis. He is the light. John, 1 John 1.5 talks about God is the light. John, in John, many, many places all through the scriptures, it talks about God being the light of the world. He is the light while he, was, while he is here. No one can distinguish the light. Where he is, there is no darkness, etc., etc. It says the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is full of light, your whole body will be full of light. And if it is full of darkness, your whole body will be full of darkness. And how great is that darkness? The fact is, he wants you to keep a focus. He wants you to see his face. He wants you to keep your eye full of light. Look at him. Behold him. See his face. I want to tell you a a little story, and I'm going to read it here in Matthew 18. It's very, very interesting about this idea. You know, when you play tennis, what do they tell you? Keep your eye on the light. I mean, on the ball. Keep your eye on the ball. In golf, you have to keep your eye on the ball. In games of any kind, I mean, anything you do, you have to keep your focus, right? If you want to make money, what do you do? You think about it. Think about how to make money. I had a very, very wealthy person tell me once, say, how do you make so much money? He had $60 million at age 24. I said, how did you make so much money? He said, I just thought about it. I just thought about it. If you give your whole life to anything, that's what it says. As a man thinketh, so is he. You can give your heart and your mind to anything and you can do it. That's what the, the, the principles work the same whether you're in Christ or not. That's the interesting part. Jesus had been teaching them about the kingdom of God, telling them all kinds of things that, they, this, that the kingdom is like a mustard seed that grows up into a big tree or the kingdom is like a treasure planted in a field or the kingdom is like a pearl of great price. Do you remember all these stories? And he would tell, um, that he would give each example to a different person according to who he was talking to, like he's talking to the merchant or the farmer. And uh, the disciples knew that this was coming around, that there was a kingdom that was going to be uh, in place soon. And they wanted to know what their role was going to be. They wanted to know who was going to be the president, who's going to be the treasurer, who's going to be the uh, people in standing, the big dogs. And so they came to him in chapter 18, and it says, The disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And he called a little child and said, I tell you the truth, unless you humble yourselves and become like one of these, you can't even enter 
the kingdom of God. And then he goes on and he talks to them about the children. And it's a very strong statement he makes. And he says, whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. That's something you can do for him. If anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble or to sin, woe to them. It would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and cast into the sea. That's a pretty strong statement about people that hurt children. We always wonder, how does he allow that? Why does he let that go on? He doesn't. It says, woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come. But woe to the man through whom they come. Because he's watching. He cares. He's not unconcerned. He says, for you, if you even cause one to stumble, it'd be better you had the millstone and cast into the sea because of what's coming ahead. Then he continues and he goes on. He's, they're asking about the kingdom. He's talking about the children. And then he says a very interesting thing. He says, See that you do not even look down on one of them. Have you ever looked down on a child? Or have you ever felt like people were looking down to you? As you've been growing up, you ever felt like they were demeaning to you? He said, see that you do not look down on one of these little ones. For I tell you that there are angels in heaven. Did you know that uh, children have angels? We all want to believe that. But did you know the Bible said that? It says, T-H-E-I-R, their angels in heaven constantly watch over the children. Think that's what it says? If you have a guardian angel, who's the angel watching? Who do you think? Who's Bart's angel watching? Bart, right? Would you think the angel would be watching Bart? What do you think? Do the angel be watching you? It doesn't say that, though. It says, I tell you that their angels in heaven constantly behold the face of my Father in heaven. That's the threat. The angels never lose their focus. They constantly behold the face of the Father in heaven. They never lose their focus. That's why they guard the children. That's why the angels can care for the children. Because they never, ever take their eyes off the face of the Father. That's the secret for our life. If you constantly behold the face of the Father in heaven, if your eye is full of light, you can be the best that you want to be in Christ as well. You will be the best friend, the best daughter, the best son, the best worker, the best student. I can be the best mother. I have three children. I can't watch my children. They're over in Annapolis. They're at school today. I can't be there with them. Even when I'm in Annapolis, I can't be with them. I have to put them on a bus and send them off. I have to trust somebody. Should I trust the teacher? Should I trust the school crossing guard? I don't think so. But what do I do? I'll tell you what he says to do. He says, you watch my face. You love me with your whole heart. You watch my face. I'll watch the children. I can't watch my husband. 
He goes to work all day. I can't do this. I can't be everything I'm supposed to be. He doesn't want me to. He wants me to do one thing. He wants me to keep my eyes on him. Just like the angels have to do it. If the angels have to do it, how much more should I? I'm going to close with one thing here. And it's the thing Jesus says. After he goes through this, you know, if you love me, you will obey what I command. If anyone loves me, he'll obey my teaching. My father will love him and we'll come to him and make our home with him, etc., etc. And as he's wrapping up, he says this. I have told you now before it happens. He's telling them what's going to happen. He's going to die. He's going to leave them. He says, you know, I won't leave you like orphans. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you, but this is what's going to happen. It's unfolding now as we are together. And he says, I won't speak with you much longer. For the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me. But the world must learn... What? That I love the Father. Isn't that what we want to do? And that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. That's how he loves the Father too. Jesus Christ never asked us to do anything that he didn't do himself. I'll read it again. He has no hold on me, the Prince of the World. But the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me to do. So the question is, what's he commanded? Read it, study it, care about it, ask him, do things, sacrifice something. Everything you do is, could be like as a sacrifice unto him, for him. Okay, I'm going to turn it over to Bart. Thank you for coming. I hope to see some of you Friday. We can continue our discussion. And uh, I do appreciate being here, talking about these things that I love to talk about most, things that are most on my heart. I appreciate the time together.